You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we are going to be in Romans chapter uh, 8 today. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. Um, But before we get there... Um, we want to take a moment to recognize our mothers. And so, you know, when, it, it's interesting. When you think of God pens Ten Commandments, he's going to write ten of them. One of the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment, is the commandment to honor your father and your mother. And I am just grateful we live in a time and place where that is like a national kind of little holiday that kind of just gives us a, a visible and tangible reminder of what it's going to look like to live out that commandment. And so this is one of those days where we get to be reminded of, yes, that fifth commandment should be our life. We should be living in that fifth commandment. And so in in saying that, if you're a mom in the room, I want you to stand where you are for all of our moms in the room. Why don't you just go ahead and stand right there. And let's just thank them. Just, oh, oh, stay, stay standing just for a second. Stay standing just for a second. I know that most of you don't like that, but... Um, We just want you to know um, how much we love and appreciate you. Um, We want you to know how grateful we are for the hard and oftentimes thankless work that you put in to serve your kids. And, uh, you know, when I think about just roles that the Lord bestows upon people, there are few roles in the universe as important as the role of a mom. So I want you to know how much we love and appreciate you, all you moms. Let's give them one more round of applause. And I also know that today is a hard day for many people because you want to be moms. And you're just, by the providence of God, you're just not yet for whatever reason. Or for some, it brings back lingering moments and just memories of moms that we've lost. So I know that in one way, this is a great day for celebration. In another way, it just brings much to mourn and grief for so many in the room. So I'd like to begin by praying for our moms and by those who are wanting to be moms, those who are remembering moms today. So, So would you join me in that? Father, we are so, so grateful for our moms. And God, I pray that today you would bless them. God, that that even more than them hearing it from their sons or daughters, Father, I pray that our moms would feel a deep sense of affirmation from you today. That that they would hear your voice say um, what a crucial and vital role being a mom is. And so, Lord, would you pour out grace upon them God, I pray that through your spirit, you would be affirming and thanking them, and they would be feeling in a a very deep way from you a yes to their work. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. And to our moms, on on the way out, we have uh, bought you a little resource this morning, and we're going to pass them out on your way out. You can also get these at the resource table or the Connection Central table on your way out. Um, But it is, and you can just kind of, just depending on your stage of motherhood and all that, you can... uh, kind of see if this uh, would apply to you and that you'd want this. But it's essentially just a, a resource that helps you parent to the heart. Like if the heart is what you're after as a parent, you need to think about that. How do you parent beyond behavior and all the way down to the heart? So it's a resource that will help you just think through some of that. How do you address these sort of behaviors in a way that don't just modify their behavior, but actually get down to the heart of what is causing that behavior? So on the way out, um, we're giving you this this morning or on the resource table, Connection Central table. So we would love for you to take one of those. Okay, we are to Romans chapter 8. This is where we are going to spend our time this morning, Romans uh, chapter 8. 
Now, um, it, it, when you start in Romans chapter 8 and you come down to verse 5, which is where we're going to be this morning, um, one of the things that you see about verse 5 is it, is it starts with the uh, word for. So that is alerting us. Verse 5 is alerting us what we're about to read in verses 5 through 8, which is where we're going to be today, is connected back to 1 through 4. So I want you just to look down at your text and just read verses 1 through 4. And as you're doing that, I just want to summarize what 1 through 4 are getting at. In Romans um, chapter 8, verse 1, Paul is announcing news that will make your heart sing. He's announcing there is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is saying that for all of those in Christ, regardless of how deep and dark your sin is, the Lord has hoisted over your life the banner of no condemnation. And you get to live under that banner for the rest of your life. That the sin that, that used to condemn you, the law that used to provoke that sin and call out that sin, regardless of, of anything the laws now are used to say, God has lifted up that banner that says no condemnation. Then you get to verse two. He announces another set of good news. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He is announcing your liberation. Verses, verse one, no condemnation. That banner is hoisted over your life. Verse two, the second banner hoisted over your life is that you have been liberated. Grace has invaded the, the fortress of sin and Satan. He has set free the, the dungeon doors. We have walked out of those dungeon doors free to, to live with God. It's announcing there is no more you know, dominion of sin in your life. Sin no longer reigns in your life. Now that begs the question, how in the world did God do that? How can God lift that banner over my life in light of who I have been and even in some ways still are? How can that be true? Verse 3 answers the question how that can be true. For God has done. If you want a four-word summary of the gospel, there it is. For God has done. If you're in Christ, it is not because you're smarter than your neighbor. It's not because you just kind of have a little more of a tender heart than your neighbor. That, that is, it's not just because you kind of put things together faster than other people. That is not the reason you're in Christ. It's not the reason you're living under banners of no condemnation and liberation. That is not the reason. If you're in Christ, there is only one reason for it, and it's the first four words of verse 3. For God has done. Because he has done that. That's the reason you are. And what has God done? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How did God raise the banners of no condemnation and liberation over our life? He did that by sending his son to live a perfect life in our place, to die on the cross in our place, risen from the dead on the third day. Now, now how does that work itself out? When we come to God with the empty hands of faith, God says this, I'll make a trade with you. I'll take all of your sin if you'll be humble enough to give it to me. I'll take all of your sin. And in return for all of your sin, I'll give you all the righteousness of my son. I'll treat you like my son. If you'll bring your sin to me, I'll treat my son like he's you in your sin. And I'll treat you as well as I would my beloved son. Would you be willing to make that deal? This is how God has hoisted the banner of no condemnation and liberation. Then you get to verse four and it starts with in order that, that's purpose. So why has God saved us? Why has God redeemed us? Why has God sent his son? What is the ultimate purpose of that? He says it in verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God saved us not so that we would go on living however we want. That's not the reason he has saved us. He has saved us so that we would now live as he wants. That we can now actually live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. 
Now, who can live a life pleasing to the Lord? He says it, the last phrase in verse four. It's those who walk not according to the flesh. If you're walking according to the flesh, you cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. You cannot live a life pleasing to God. But, but who can live a life pleasing for God? Not, not those who walk according to the flesh, but those who walk according to the spirit. That's whose life pleases God. That's whose life is fulfilling the law that used to condemn us. Now those who are walking according to the spirit, that law is now a friend that counsels us. Now that last phrase, those who walk according to the flesh, or not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, that is the phrase that the next four verses are gonna unpack for us and untangle for us. Verses five through eight are really an explanation of verse four. Okay, so then we get to verse five. Here's the explanation of verse four. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, it is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. For those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. One of my favorite guys in church history wrote like a 300-page book on this little passage. I'm about to do it in three statements. Here we go. Three statements. I want to just put this in three categories as we're thinking through uh, these, these four verses. Here is category number one I want you to think through. That Paul is illustrating the two mentalities. The two mentalities that everyone lives by. You know, think about, think about like when you look across this room, think about the complex ways, sophisticated way you classify and organize people. When you look across this room, you give the classifications to help organize and just think through like who is here? We have the, the you know, classification of like gender. There's male and female. We have the classification of like Democrat, Republican, rich, poor. I mean, you just name, I mean, we've got a million sort of superficial classifications that we use to help make sense of the world around us. But Paul is saying in this passage, those are all superficial. That those are not deep down. That those are all skin deep. Deep down, he is saying, you get behind all of our superficial classifications. Deep down, there are only two types of people. Two types. It's those who are according to the flesh, those who are according to the spirit, those who are minding the flesh, those who are minding the spirit. Those are the only two categories that really exist. They're the only two categories that, that deep down really matter. Now look at verse five. Here are the two categories. For those who live, and you might just circle that word live. We're gonna come back to that for just a second. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. This is category one, living according to the flesh, setting their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the, or those who live according to the spirit and set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now in verse five, do you see the word live there? Your translation might say walk, live or walk. Um, most English translations are doing some translating work for you in that, and they're supplying a verb into verse five, that live or that walk. It's the verb they're supplying to help you kind of make sense of that. But the actual Greek does not contain a verb there, right? So if you have an NSAB version, a, a, 
uh, if you have, it's kind of a more wooden sort of a literal translation, you'll see that that translation does not have that verb in there. It just says for those who are according to the flesh or those who are according to the spirit. It takes out that word live or walk. And I think Paul is saying something about that. He's saying this is deeper than our behavior. This is getting all the way down into what we are. That this is the two categories of people. You are according to the flesh or you are according to the spirit. You have set your mind on the things of the flesh or you have a person who has set your mind on the things of the spirit. This is the deep down categories that in the end really matter. They're, they're, and at the end, you know, in the end of the day, they're the only two categories that do matter. That this is the deepest thing that could be said about a person. They are according to the flesh. They are according to the spirit. Now, you know, in that second phrase, it talks about what does it mean to, to mind the flesh or to mind the spirit or to set your mind on these things. It's kind of the explanation or the way that we know if we're according to the flesh or according to the spirit. Because if we're according to the flesh, we set our mind on the flesh. If we're according to the spirit, we set our mind on the things of the spirit. So what does it mean to mind the flesh or to mind the spirit? Let's take the, the mind the flesh first. What does it mean to set your mind for your mentality to be on the flesh. Now, let's just think about two phrases. So the first one is to mind something. What does it mean to set your mind on something or to mind something? Um, we have a phrase in our language that I think is helpful to kind of think about this. Um, when somebody is kind of all up in your business, they're concerned about your life. They, they are asking questions about their life, that they've kind of nosed into your life in a way that is deeply personal. That there are moments when we look at people and we say that old English phrase, Mind your what? Mind your own business, right? Now, what do we mean by that? We mean that you have your nose in something your nose shouldn't be in. You are all up and about something that you don't need to be about something. You're all concerned and preoccupied with my life. Why don't you be preoccupied with your life? Now, I think that is showing you what it means to set your mind on something. It's more than just I kind of occasionally think about it. It is saying that you are deeply engrossed into something. To set your mind on something means that you dwell on it. It's got your heart, your mind, your will, your affections. You're preoccupied with it. It stirs your ambitions. The, the concerns for this thing overtake you. We spend our time and energy on it. To mind something means that it has a hold on our heart. That is what it means to mind something. Now let's go to the second part of that phrase. So to set your mind on the flesh. What does the flesh mean? The flesh, you know, it can be used in various ways in the Bible. Sometimes it can be used to describe your, you know, your skin, but that is not the way it's being used here. The flesh here is talking about that deep part of you that has been affected by sin, that runs all the way through the deepest part of our souls that have been, that been affected and dragged down and distorted and deformed by sin. It's that sin-dominated part of you. It's that part of us that's at war with God, that does not want to submit to God, that is all about us. That, that is the flesh. It's that part of us that is just so self-absorbed that when we look at our life, we look at our, everything about our life, our marriage, our kids, our work, our everything through the lens of what is in it for me. It, just through the lens of self, that, that's the flesh. So put that together and here's what you've got. What does it mean to set your mind on the flesh? To set our mind on the flesh means that the tilt of our lives is toward ourselves, our own selfish interests. The bend of our life is toward our wants, our fame, our position, our power, our reputation, our coolness, our big dillness. It's just that part of us that when we set our mind on the flesh, it is just all about us, all about our glory, our fame. 
It's a way of living, a way of thinking that, that says earthly things pay the greatest and please the most. You know, if we used an old English word for it, we would call it like worldly thinking. That, that is what it means to have your mind set on the flesh. To set your mind on the flesh is to live your life, and I think this is key, without God, without reliance upon God, without dependence upon God, not to the glory of God. Your life is about you, not about God. It is strangely void of God when we set our mind on the things of the flesh. Now, on the other hand, if that's what your mind on the flesh looks like, what does the mind on the spirit look like? To have your mind set on the spirit means something supernatural has happened to you. You have been invaded by grace and now the spirit of God dwells in you. He reigns in you and he is now shaping what you think about. Your, your life is no longer dominated by the flesh. It is now dominated and controlled by the spirit. He is the new reigning master in your life. That, that native sense of big dillness that we all are born with. You're born with it. I'm born with it. You know what I'm talking about? That, that native sense of like, we are the man. And everybody else needs to recognize that. That native sense of big dillness has been dethroned and the spirit of God has been installed and enthroned in your life. If, if you wanna think about what it means to set your mind on the things of, of the spirit, I think we need to think about what is the spirit's mind set on? Because to set your mind on the spirit means that we are setting our mind on the things that the spirit's mind is set on. So we need to think about what does the spirit do other than make Baptists and Presbyterians really nervous? Like, what, 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 does the, what does the Holy Spirit actually do? Let me just run through a few things. John 16, 14 and 15. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus and reveals Jesus. John 14, verses 12 through 16. The Holy Spirit gifts us to do the ministry like Jesus. John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit reminds us of Jesus. In Acts 1, 8, the Holy Spirit empowers us to tell the good news of Jesus. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit leads us to understand that Jesus is our Lord. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live like Jesus. You kind of get the sense of what the Holy Spirit is about? The Holy Spirit is about Jesus, about exalting Jesus, about lifting up Jesus. He is, his mind is set on how do I make Jesus look great in, my, in, in the world? That, that is what the Spirit's mind is on. So to say that our mind is on the Spirit means that our mind is on Jesus. How can we make Jesus look great in the world? What, what weakness can we embrace in our life so Jesus can show himself to be strong in our life? How can we exalt Jesus? How can we lift up Jesus? How can we do that with our life? That is what having a mind set on the Spirit is. No longer dominated by you and the flesh, but now on the Spirit and, and the concerns of Jesus. I love how Ray Ortland, he says it this way. One person's whole orientation, the, the fleshly person, whole orientation to life is centered on earthly things offering earthly payoffs. And the other's whole orientation to life is centered on spiritual things promising heavenly payoffs. One person's heart is charmed and fascinated and rewarded by the treasures of this world. And the other person's heart is charmed and fascinated and rewarded by the treasures of a higher world. Now, let me just apply this and clarify one thing here. When you are thinking about what Paul is saying, it is vital that you see the primary point he is making. His primary point is not, you know, if you're kind of like, a lot of your life, you're a Christian, and a lot of your life is like shaped around setting your mind on the spirit, but every now and then you fall into kind of 
setting your mind on the flesh. You need to like set your mind on the spirit more. That, that is not his primary point. Paul's primary point in, in verses five through eight is to say, this is who a Christian is. You're either according to the flesh and you're not a Christian or you're according to the spirit and you are. But what a Christian is, is a person who is according to the, to the spirit, who, who is, who's got their mind set on the spirit. That, that's what a Christian is. It's not just that we should like do this more. It's like, this is not elite level Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. Our mind is set on the things of the spirit. Now, that just makes us all it should. I think this is one of the applications of this passage is for all of us to step back and just ask the question. If that is how Paul defines a Christian, am I a Christian? Are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? And when you're answering that question, don't just look back at your past and think, man, there was some moment where I had this emotional experience with God. I did something with the Lord. You might have become a Christian then, but that's not how you know that you're a Christian. You know that you're a Christian because you're looking at your life and you're seeing this sense of the Spirit now reigns in me and it's like my mind, what I'm thinking about pursuing, that the tilt of my life is now toward the things of God. That's how you know. This is how you can evaluate, like, am I a Christian? And I'm not talking about just taking a snapshot of your life. I'm talking about the panoramic picture of your life is the tilt toward God. Is the bend of your life dominated by the flesh and you, or is it bent toward God? He's saying this is what a Christian is. They are according to the Spirit. They're not according to the flesh. Statement number two, or point number two. Each mentality produces fruit. Each mentality produces fruit. So if you are according to the flesh and you're setting your minds on the things of the flesh, it produces certain things in your life. And if you're according to the Spirit and setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, it produces certain things in your life. And verse 6 is the explanation of that. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? <clears throat> Death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. There it is. There, there's the fruits. Let's take the flesh first. The mind that is set on the flesh produces death. This is the end game. This is what it does in our life. It, it produces death. The flesh promises so much. If you can get position, you can get power, you can have your inner sense of big dealness stroked and affirmed by people, then you'll have what life is really all about. But then you'll have it. The problem is as soon as you take a bite of the flesh, you instantly taste that bitter sort of aftertaste of death that it produces. This is that sort of mentality that is leaving God out of our lives. And Paul is saying here that that mentality that leaves God out of our life, here is what it does. It produces death and ruin in our life. He goes on in verse 7. Why does it produce death and ruin in our life? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now that explains, I think, a lot of what it means to be rooted in the flesh as opposed to the spirit. To be rooted in the flesh means that there is an innate hostility toward God that we are living with. Now think about what that hostility looks like. It doesn't mean that you have to go around like, you know, angrily cursing God. That's not what that hostility always has to look like. That hostility, I think, is rooted in a sense of control. Who is going to be the master in this thing? Are you the master or is God? Who, who gets the top seat? 
in your life? Is it yourself or is it God? Who gets to call the shots in your life? Is it God or is it you? That is where the inbuilt hostility toward God really lies. We are all born with this inner sense of, there is no one that's gonna tell me what to do. I don't care who you are or what name you go by, even God. That is the innate hostility that we are all born with. He goes on to explain this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. What does that hostility look like? For it does not submit to God's law. It does not submit. It is saying, my life is my life. God, do not tell me what to do. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. Verse 8. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. A life that is void of God, however good it looks on the surface. A life that is not lived in reference to God. A life rooted in the flesh, Paul is saying, it can never be pleasing to God. It cannot. This is the fruit of Setting your mind on the things of the flesh, it's death, it's hostility toward God. It's a life that is never going to be pleasing to God, leading to our eternal ruin. That, that's the fruit of the flesh. Now, let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 6, he says two things of the fruit of the Spirit, life and peace. Let's take life first. This is one of the big themes that Paul develops in Romans. When he is talking about what it means to, to come with the empty hands of faith, trusting Jesus, receiving Jesus' righteousness, he'll, he'll always talk about it in these terms. It is producing life in us. We go from death to life. We have been buried in Christ's baptism in Romans 6, raised to walk in newness of life. He, he's talking about in this chapter that the Spirit does something. It sets us free from death and it sets us free into life. It's the, one of the big themes he's got, uh, you know, that he's unpacking here. Now think about what he is saying in that. In saying that, that in Jesus, in the spirit, life is produced. He, he is showing us that there are at least two ways to kind of operate and live. One you might call existing and the other you might call living. And he is saying that there is only one way out of existence and into living. And that is a supernatural occurrence where we come with the empty hands of faith. The Spirit now indwells in us, dethroning that flesh, installing himself as the king and reigning master of our souls. Now shaping us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, namely Jesus himself. That, that is the only way we get out of existence and into life, he is saying. That's the only way we enter into to what he calls in, in John 10, 10, that abundant life. That's the only way that happens. So part of, of the fruit of the spirit is that we walk into life, like what God has meant life to be. And, and then he says that, that peace is the fruit of that, that peace. Our hearts are no longer defensive and edgy and tense toward God, but, but the hostility is now gone. In, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we now have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. But we now look at God, the one we were made for, and our, and our heart has found a home in him. It reminds, us, or it reminds me of that old quote by Augustine, where he says, Our hearts are restless, O God, until our hearts find their rest in you. Now hear me on that. Our hearts are restless, O oh God. That is life in the flesh. They are always restless, always searching. How am I going to find life? And it goes from one kind of thinly dressed kind of form of death after another. 
trying this one and that one, but they're all producing death. Our hearts are restless. But until, he says, we, our hearts find their rest in the ones our heart were made for. Our hearts are restless, oh God, until our hearts find their rest in you. This is how Ray Ortland summarizes verses six and seven. He says, the complex network of convictions and desires and ambitions that make you, you, that shape your personality and order your priorities, they are either God-neglecting or God-enjoying. And Paul's point in verse six is that your basic orientation in life is either killing you, bringing about death in you, or it's energizing, bringing life and peace. Fixing ourselves on the rewards of this life dooms us to frustration and bitterness and emptiness. But when we turn away from this world and open our hearts wide to God and all that he offers us in Christ, we discover life and peace. So how, how do you know if your mind is set on the spirit this morning? Just look at your life and ask the question, is your life producing death? Or is your life producing life and peace? Are you living with a glad confidence that you are a sinner, but you are saved by the grace of Jesus? Are you living in a way where you can embrace your weakness so that God could be made much of in your life? Is your life producing death? Just everywhere you turn, the bitter aftertaste all about your life, or is it producing life and peace? Third statement. Our mentalities, setting your mind on the flesh, setting your you know, mind on the spirit, our mentalities, these two mentalities that really define people, the categories that really matter, these mentalities can be very difficult to see. Now, I think this is the crux of the morning. This is the crucial few minutes of this sermon is that you understand what we're about to talk about. That these two realities can be really hard to see. You know, anytime you're reading the Bible, I think one healthy question for you to ask is this question. Why is this being written? Like, why, why are they taking the time to write this? And, and here is one obvious answer to this particular passage we're in, in verses 5 through 8 this morning, that I think we're really prone to overlook. Here is one of the reasons Paul is writing verses 5 through 8. It's because we all need to learn how to distinguish the difference between our lives being rooted in the flesh or rooted in the spirit. In other words, you don't come out of the womb knowing that. I, living in the flesh is so innate to us that unless somebody clarifies these things, we'll never know the difference. See, that, that's what he's saying. This is the reason that he's, one of the reasons that he's writing it. He wants you and I to know the difference. In particular, you and I that are in the church. Now, I want to read a passage from Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest minds of the last century. And I just want you to get a sense of why it's so important that you and I can see and distinguish between lives rooted in the flesh, in particular our lives, and lives rooted in the spirit. Why that is so important. Listen to what he says. I think this will be on the screen for you. 
He says, the central problem of our age is not liberalism. He's writing in kind of the mid-1900s. Not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. You just put any ism you want to in there. Individualism today, postmodernism. We could just put all the isms in there. All the things that are outside the church. All the kind of cultural things that like to bleed into the church. Listen to what he says about that. All these are dangerous, but they're not the primary threat. The real problem, the primary threat is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately. So you and I as a person that makes up this church family and our church family as a whole. Here is the main threat. Is that our church, individually or corporately, tending, just tending, to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the power of the spirit. That is the main danger that we would be people who are doing God's work in the wrong way out of the flesh and not out of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding him. Now hear that. If we as a church want to be all that God would want us to be, if we want to see happen all that God would want to see happen, if we want the power of God to flow through this church into the world around us, here is the number one issue that we have to figure out. What does it mean for us to do the Lord's work in the right way and not the wrong way? What does it mean for us to do the Lord's work not in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit? What does that mean? And here's the thing, it is not easy to discern. See, here, here is my number one um, just fear that you would have when you read Romans 5, uh, you know, 8, 5 through 8. My number one fear is that when you think about, okay, so here's the life according to the flesh, set their minds in the flesh. Here's the life according to the Spirit, setting their minds on the things of the Spirit. Here's, here's the, those two people. And then when you think about what it means to live in the flesh, my number one fear is that you would think like this. That, that is easy to see. It is those people who are like morally so bad doing all those bad things. That, that is what people of the flesh look like. If you believe that, you are under a grave misconception. I want you to picture three categories of people. These are going to be on the screen for you. I want you to picture three categories of people. Category number one, they are people who are openly defying God. They're the people who it is obvious to see they are not living for the Lord. It is obvious to see that these are people who their life is immoral and they are breaking every commandment of God and kind of doing it on purpose. Okay, they are openly defying God. Here is category number two. They are openly serving God, but they're doing it out of the flesh. So they look good on the outside, but it is all about the flesh on the inside. And here's category number three. They are openly serving God, but they are doing it out of the Spirit. Now, here is the crucial thing that we have to see. Where is the dividing line in this, in, you know, on that list? Where is the major dividing line that separates everything? Where does God draw the line on this list? How does he separate this list out? Most people think it is between one and two, openly defying God or openly serving God out of the flesh, but that is not where God draws the line. God draws the line between two and three. Everything on the top of that list cannot please God because it leaves God out of everything. It is just category three, serving God out, rooted in out of the power of the spirit that God looks at and says, yes to that. 
I like that. That is pleasing to me. Everything above that line is all displeasing to the Lord. Now, do you see why this becomes very hard to spot? Because category two and three can look a lot of like on the surface, can't they? But it's a skin-deep difference. I I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it. He says, the difference between the obvious so-called sinner and the highly cultured good moral man is purely a social difference. It's purely a superficial one. Think about it this way. The, the, the person you know that you would look at your, in your life and say, they are the worst person I know, put them in category one. Now in category two, think about the best person you know, but they're operating out of the flesh. What, what Paul is saying here is that that worst person you know and that best person you know, but operating out of the flesh, when you crawl behind their behavior, You you crawl behind that and you get down to their heart. Their heart is exactly the same. It is void of God and it is all them. It is all flesh. And God looks at that and says, it is not pleasing to me. So seeing this is really, really hard. Think about Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Do you remember the story? Um, Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter announces, here's who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who you are. It's like two thumbs up for Peter. He's doing awesome. Then the next thing Jesus says is, um, the religious leaders and the the Pharisees and scribes, they are about to do horrible things to me. I'm about to be killed by them. And Peter literally grabs Jesus, takes him to the side, and hear this, he rebukes Jesus. I mean, he's thinking in this moment, Jesus just needs to kind of be brought in line here. I need to kind of straighten him up for a moment. He rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus grabs Peter. And you remember what he says to him? Here's what he says. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, now hear this. Do you think if you would have asked Peter right before he said this to Jesus, hey, do you think you're operating out of the flesh? you think you're operating out of the spirit? He would have looked at you and said, that's such a dumb question. Yes, I'm operating out of the spirit. Jesus just needs to know what the spirit's saying here. That's what he needs. He needs to be straightened out for a moment here. He would have never have dreamed that he's operating out of the flesh in that moment. Jesus has to clarify for Peter, Peter, Listen to yourself. Watch yourself. Do you not see that how you're talking, what you're saying has nothing to do with the spirit and everything to do with the flesh? Can you not see that, Peter? See, here's one of the scariest things in all of our lives. We can be totally operating out of the flesh and really believe that we're operating out of the spirit. And what we all need in our life is for the spirit to come to us and to show us, no, that is of the flesh. That is not of the spirit. We're all personally dependent upon Jesus doing that for us. And listen, that is painful. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. That is painful work. I'm one of just, you know, the, the Lord has done this for me on multiple occasions in my life. One of the most glaring and painful and obvious was a couple of years into my first ministry position. Um, our staff at the time was doing, uh, reading through this book. It was on like developing your strengths, like finding your strengths and kind of operating in your strengths. So at the end of that book, it had us do a little like test and it would spit out your top five strengths. So I did the test. It spit out my top five strengths. My number one strength was competition. We get together in our next staff meeting and we read the description of competition. I want to read it to you. 
Here's how it described my greatest attribute, my greatest strength. Here's the description. Competition is rooted in comparison. When you look at the world, you are instinctively aware of other people's performance. Their performance is the ultimate yardstick. No matter how hard you try, no matter how worthy your intentions, if you reached your goal but did not outperform your peers, the achievement feels hollow. Like all competitors, you need other people. You need to compare. If you can compare, you can compete. And if you can compete, you can win. And when you win, there is no feeling like it. You like measurements because it facilitates comparisons. You like competitors because they invigorate you. You like contests because they must produce a winner. You particularly like contests where you know you have the inside track to be the winner. Although you are gracious to your fellow competitors, you don't compete for the fun of competing. You compete to win. Now, I can't, it's hard for me to describe what the Lord did to me in that moment. Like, I think in one way, it was like this moment of scales coming off of my eyes. And for one of the first moments of my life, realizing So much of my accomplishments, academically, athletically, now even in ministry, that so much of my accomplishments were rooted directly in the flesh. They had nothing to do with God. It was like one of those moments in my life where I would say it was like a painful wounding from the Lord. And without that, I am, I am fairly sure that I would have gone down my merry way and everything I'm doing still rooted in the flesh. And isn't that crazy? That I'm talking about good. I mean, here was the ironic thing for me in that moment. I was applauded for all the things I was doing. And the flesh, motivated out of the flesh, rooted in the flesh, was, was helping me accomplish great things. I mean, like the things that I were doing were nine out of ten really good things that people would look at and think, Man, he's killing it, in ministry killing it, preaching, discipling kids, academically killing it, and all of these things doing so great, applauded for it, and God is looking at all of it saying, it all stinks to me. It is all filthy rags. Listen, even the best of those things, the very best of them, I mean, it was this painful wounding from the Lord. Last night, um, Laura and I were at a foster care banquet. The agency we were with doing like a little volunteer or kind of an appreciation banquet for the foster families. And there was this one lady who had been doing it for 15 years. She's had 38 kids come to her home. Um, at one point, she was doing older teenagers. One of those teenagers burnt down her home. Didn't phase her. She kept with that teenager, kept on going down the road. I mean, just a beautiful moment of watching that. And I had this moment in me of like, gosh, that is such a beautiful thing. And even something as beautiful as that can be rooted in the flesh. It can still be, it, it can have such great skin on it, but it can still be rooted in the flesh. Where God would look at that and say, that does not please me. Mom's in the room. Your parenting, when it's all about you, all about the flesh, does not please God. Dad's in the room. 
Your parenting, when it's out of the flesh, does not please God. Business people in the room, all of your accomplishments, when it's rooted in the flesh, when it's all about you, does not please God. Your generosity, when it's all about you, does not please God. Your serving, when it's all about you, does not please God. It stinks to God. And if we want to be a church who actually has the power of God flow through us, we've got to move from a life of serving God, of doing things that he would want. We've got to move from it being motivated and rooted out of the flesh to being rooted into the spirit. That is the only way a church will receive the power from Jesus that we actually crave and want. Now, I want to finish with the last few minutes and just give you some glimpses of this in the Bible. What does it look like for a heart and a life to be rooted not in the flesh, but in the spirit? What does that look like? Just a few glimpses here. You could think of the Psalms for a minute. You see this expressed all throughout the Psalms? Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 63, one through three. Oh God, you are my God. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's what it feels like, God. It's just like a man dying of thirst who cannot wait to get a drink. That is my heart to you. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. That is a man whose heart and soul is rooted in the spirit. The spirit is indwelling him, reigning in him, shaping his mind, will, emotions. Maybe you could think about it in terms of John the Baptist. You remember the story in John chapter three? You know, the opening chapters of, of John, John is the man. I mean, he is the big deal. People are flocking out to see him. He's got the massive crowds around him. He is preaching for Jesus' sake, pointing people to Jesus, but he is the deal. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene and John is no longer the big deal. Jesus is now the big deal. All of John's followers are now running after Jesus. And one of John's disciples come to John and say, John, we've got a problem. We've got a bad problem. No one's following you anymore. This is not good. They're all going to Jesus. They're leaving you. Do you remember what John says? He must increase, but I must decrease. That is a man speaking out of, operating out of, his mind set on the things of the Spirit. How can I make Jesus look great? I don't care if I have to look like an idiot. How can I make him look great? That is a mindset on the spirit. How about Paul in Acts chapter 20? This is the moment where he's talking to the, uh, the elders in Ephesus and he's departing from them and he's going to Jerusalem and he knows bad things are about to happen in Jerusalem. Some guy as a metaphor chains him up, puts a belt around his arms and says, Paul, this is, this is the picture. This is what's coming for you. Paul knows it's about to go so bad in Jerusalem. But listen to what Paul says as he's leaving these um, elders in Ephesus. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. It is about to go bad for Paul. 
It is not going good for him. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Do you see that? That is a man rooted in the spirit. He's looking at his life and saying, if I live another year, another five years, another 10 years, it really doesn't matter in life of, in light of all of life is really a vapor. It really does not matter. What really matters is that I obey God and I finish the course. Man, the race that he has marked out for me, I cross the finish line. That's what really matters, regardless of if I live or if I die. And I'll just finish by this one in church history. Uh, many of y'all know the story of Jim Elliott. He and um, four other guys went to Ecuador to, uh, to try to reach to unreached peoples. They were in the Ecuadorian jungle and they were going after villages that had never been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. One in particular were the Alcas. Um, that that translated means savages. And that's what they were. There had never been a person to make contact with them who lived to tell about it. And so um, God put it in their heart to go down to, to that foreign place and to give their life to a group of people that were in the middle of nowhere. Nobody cared about what they were doing. No one was worried about what they were doing. Listen, these, these people had families. Almost all of them were married. Many of them had little kids. They had their life in front of them. They go down to that jungle in the middle of nowhere, try to make contact with this, this village. They finally make contact with them and they're all five speared to death and killed. Now, what makes the person willing to do that? What, what creates that willingness in them? He wrote this four or five years before he went down. This is January 15th, 1951. Several years before he was killed by the Alka Indians. He says, I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting. It is delicious. To stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze in glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, the pleasure, the sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him, if only I may love him and please him. Perhaps in mercy he will give me a host of children that I may lead them through the vast star field to explore his delicacies, whose finger, God's finger, set these stars burning. But if not, if only I may see God, if only I may smell his garments and smile into his eyes, oh, then not stars nor children shall matter, only God himself. That is a healthy man with a healthy mentality. That, that is a man whose mind is set on the spirit, then whose, whose power, now God's power then flows through him. And may that be us. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment just to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you in the ways that you need this morning. And
the primary point is that Christians are people who have their mind set on the Spirit. A supernatural thing has happened. The flesh has been dethroned. The Spirit of God now enthroned, shaping and reigning in our hearts so that now Jesus is the all-consuming passion of our life. Are you a Christian? Am I? Oh, but God would help us see these things. Not allow us to say safely in our misconceptions of these things. And here's the great news this morning. That if we're not, if we're not in Christ, God with wide open arms invites us in. Willing to make the trade. I'll take your sin if you'll give it to me. I'd love to take that. And I'll bestow upon you the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Are you willing to make that trade? And maybe you are a Christian, but, but your mind has just drifted. And this just happens innately. It just drifts. This is what happens when we're not purposely setting our minds on the Spirit. It just drifts toward the flesh. But when you're looking at your life, you're just maybe realizing like I did several years ago that so much of what I'm doing is rooted not in the spirit, but in the flesh. Oh, that God would give us eyes for that. Two times in verses seven and eight, Paul says, you cannot. So let's not be, you know, let's not misunderstand. This is not something we can just kind of say, you know what, today I'm going from spirit to, you know, from flesh to spirit. I'm making the move. Now this is something we actually need God to do in us. That we'll never be set free from feeling like the flesh is more attractive. Even though it's producing death, we'll never be set free from that apart from the Spirit's work in our lives. So God, would you please come now? God, would you please help us? God, would you, would you be kind enough this morning to show us where our lives are rooted in everything but you? And God, would you change us? Would you help us feel deep down in our bones that the Spirit produces life and peace? God, would you get us over us? God, would you dethrone that innate sense of big dillness? And God, would you, maybe again for the thousandth time that we've needed it, would you set us free again from these things? God, would you help us this morning? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.